Well, all right. Uh, today we begin what uh, some consider to be one of the greatest and richest books in the Bible. And it's a magisterial work without question. It's Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, and uh, it could be read and studied and thought over again and again and again for the remainder of our days, and we would never mine fully all the glorious truths contained in it. Um, the great Bible translator of the Protestant Reformation, William Tyndale, who died a martyr's death in 1536, he was burned at the stake at the hands of the Catholic Church for translating the Bible into the common language of the people. He wrote of Romans in the prologue of his translation of the New Testament in 1534, saying, quote, For as much as this epistle is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament and most pure, and also a light and a way unto the whole scripture, I think it meet that every Christian man not only know it by rote, but also exercise himself therein evermore continually, as with the daily bread of the soul. No man verily can read it too oft or study it too well, for the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is searched, the more precious things are found in it. So great treasure of spiritual things lieth hid therein. I don't know if I could have said it better, I guess. Uh, and I think, though we're going to barely scratch scratch the surface in, in these podcasts, I hope that you will take time in your own personal reading through this letter to study it with um, extra care. So let's just note uh, three quick things about this first chapter that I hope you've already read before coming to the podcast. And if you have, you'll know that uh, the first thing we'll notice is that this book is about the gospel. So I don't know if you noticed, but the word gospel kept appearing again and again in this first chapter, in the first half of the chapter. Uh, in this, in the very first verse of the book, we learn that Paul was, quote, set apart for the gospel of God. And in verse 9, he referred to the gospel of his son. In verse 15, he said that he was eager to preach the gospel to those in Rome, whom, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Paul had never once met at the time that he wrote this letter to them. He had never met them in person. Um and finally, in verse 16, he famously declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. So, in truth, uh, the first half of chapter 1 serves as a preface to the entire letter in the sense that all the main themes that are going to appear throughout the letter are mentioned here in these first few verses. That being the case, and seeing that Paul uh, refers to the gospel four times in such a short amount of uh, space, uh, it, it is inarguable that the gospel is at center stage in Romans. In fact, Paul's letter to the Romans uh, presents perhaps the clearest and most, and definitely uh, the most thorough presentation of the gospel in the Bible. Um, that is something we're definitely going to keep an eye on, a careful eye on, as we proceed through the letter. And Paul, Paul doesn't waste any time getting to it, as the second half of the chapter begins his introduction to the gospel uh, by presenting essentially the bad news to us first. The first three chapters of Romans are fairly depressing, <laughs> but they are crucially important if we're to understand the full uh, glory and, and grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. So the second half of the chapter begins to teach us about the frightening deceitfulness of sin. That'll be a second thing we can 
see in this chapter, the, the frightening deceitfulness of sin. Beginning in verse 18 of the chapter, Paul begins in earnest laying the groundwork for the good news of the gospel that's going to come later in chapter 3. Uh, beginning in here in chapter 1 and verse 18, he begins a section that will run clear through Romans 3.20, uh, basically establishing the damning sinfulness of all people before God. He's going to lay out the case here in chapter 1 that the Gentiles are condemned sinners before God, and then follow up in chapter 2 to show how the Jews also are condemned sinners before God, drawing the conclusion, the famous conclusion in chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So the clear and obvious theme of the first three chapters are the fact of sin, not just in the world around us, but within the heart of every one of us. One thing, however, that stands uh, out in chapter 1 is not only the fact of sin, but also the hardening deceitfulness of sin. Uh, for starters, in verse 18, Paul not, Paul not only talks about the unrighteousness of men, but also how our unrighteousness, that is our, our sin and our rebellion against God, also causes us to, as he puts it, suppress the truth. Paul calls it suppressing the truth. Because deep down, we know the truth of God, but we don't like it. That's the, that's the thing. And our sinful hearts are perfectly content to suppress it and go our own way, in part because we deceive ourselves into thinking that it doesn't really matter or I'll deal with it later. And we can just get on with uh, the distracting busyness of daily life. The sin in our hearts will deceive us so thoroughly that we actually believe that the, the busyness of our daily lives and commitments are more important than the real business that we have with our holy God, creator, and judge. Because our sin so completely deceives us, we do irrational things, like he puts it in Romans one twenty six. We exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We become uh, inventors of evil, according to Romans one thirty. And even when we know that something is wrong and, and is, is neither honoring uh, nor pleasing to God, not only, only do we uh, do it anyway, but Romans one thirty two says we comfort ourselves knowing that other people are doing it too. Our sin deceives us into measuring ourselves by the standard of other people's conduct rather than the holy and righteous character and word of God. Sin is frighteningly deceptive. And then finally, uh, the frightening judgment of God is, uh, is on display in this chapter. Um, it's equally uh, frightening as the deceitfulness of sin, uh, God's reaction to our stubborn rebellion against him. Because God never sits idly by um, our open refusal to acknowledge him in all our ways. His holy and righteous character will not allow him to do it. It would be wrong of us to think that the judgment of God against our sin has only one look, according to this chapter, because this chapter makes it clear God's judgment against us does not always come in the form of fire and brimstone, as it's often put. Often it comes, initially at least, in a way that our sinfully deceived hearts don't even perceive. Notice a phrase that appears three times here in chapter 1. In verse 24, Paul says, therefore God gave them up to impurity. 
In verse 26, Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, Paul says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That is judgment. God gives us up to what? To what we want to do. He pulls back his restraining grace and lets us do unopposed what we want to do. He lets us have our own way. And unfortunately, apart from his grace, that means digging our own grave. A heart deceived by sin will not recognize that as a judgment from God because in real time, it feels like we're just enjoying the constant freedom to do everything I want to do, not at all caring that it is opposed to the will of God. That is a frightening prospect and one that should lead us to take our sin seriously and to marvel at the grace of God that he has freely given us in Jesus Christ. And those are a few thoughts from Romans chapter 1.